I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry, and this is Liberty Lori. And uh, you are joining us live for season two, 23 of Restore Freedom Weekly. I have some important stuff to share with you today about some very recent Supreme Court cases from the United States Supreme Court. Okay, guys, so buckle up. I'm going to try to speed talk through this because there's some important stuff that you need to know. And okay, guys, so those of you who have been listening or watching me for quite a while, you know I'm an attorney. You know that I get into the nitty gritty of all the details. And sometimes, man, when I'm talking about a court case, I mean, I'm telling you all the 75,000 words I've highlighted on each decision. This is important stuff that I need to tell you about. And I don't know if I should go all conspiracy theory about it, but I mean, it seems like maybe the big tech giants don't want you to know what's been happening. Uh, what kinds of wins there are for the freedom fight, um, although it's not been enough. It's been something, and it's something that we need um, need to um, do. Recently, I've been tugged at, gosh, there was a good one. Okay, well then, oh gosh, this seems like a good one. And then, oh my goodness, this seems like a good one. And in fact, a few of these are ones that I told you guys about. Um, I think I did a call to action, I don't know, say a month ago. Two months ago, I have no idea anymore, um, the concept of time, but I shared with you, I think, two or three cases to watch, to keep your eye on that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court was deciding on. And in fact, they did not disappoint. At least one of them I specifically remember I had shared with you um, because it's got threes in the name. And well, you know, three is my favorite number. Any of you who know me um, would laugh because why else do you think I got P.O. Box 333? Uh, Ormond Beach and uh, my physical address also has nothing but threes and uh, my birthday's got threes and goes from there. Anyway, so my phone number, uh, every phone number that we have actually, <laughs> except for Mike's because <laughs> that was pre-Catherine. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, the um, the if you look at the United States Supreme Court's uh, website, if you look at their opinions, there's something that shows you the 10 most recent opinions that they've had. And yeah, they're all good uh, to look at. I'm not saying they're all good decisions. They're all good to look at. It's always good to know what's happening with your government. It's always good to see what's going on. Um, but there's five that really stood out to me. And those are the five I wanted to highlight for you today. Now, three of them, it's going to be a much more peripheral overview, very quick. But two of them have extensive things that I wanted to share with you. And they're monumental. Like, uh, they're just, they're huge. And for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, but they're things that we really need to know about. And they're honestly, they are course changing for the entire country. And that's why we need to know about them. Um, but there's good things in these other ones as well. Religious accommodations in government workplaces. Um, limits on administrative agency power. Now, we all know administrative agencies are entirely unconstitutional anyway. They don't belong in a constitutional republic. Uh, but nonetheless, they're here. And so uh, the decision I want to talk to you about is actually good in terms of how it focuses on the limits of administrative agency power. The cases talk about duties and limits of state legislatures, 
and um, the protection of private property rights. You wouldn't believe what court case actually has some of the best stuff about private property rights in there. In fact, for those of you who've been following along and what's happening with me in my city of Ormond Beach case, the uh, supposed ordinance violation stuff that we've got going on, and we're in the throes of the appellate briefing period. And in fact, I have to write my reply brief here within the next couple weeks. Um, let me tell you, some of these decisions that just came out that we're going to talk about today are going right in that brief because it's shocking the substance you think would be in a certain case, how it somehow gets pulled into a case that you would think, you know, has nothing to do with that. Racial justice, affirmative action, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So these are topics that are hot button issues that are in these just five cases that we're going to talk about. Now, another thing I want to mention, okay, courts don't make laws, but their opinions can't simply be ignored. So let me kind of hammer on that in, in another um, second here. But uh, the true or false question, I think it doesn't have any technological issues. Who knows? I guess you'll have to tell me if you're able to participate on YouTube. I actually got it scheduled yesterday for this morning to go live at 10. Uh, but okay, so important reminder about cases. There's, I think, two slides about this. Um, and sorry, like I said, this did not. Oh, you guys can't even see my slides. What am I talking about? Um, well, okay, I'll fix the slide, I guess, uh, before you guys see it on Thursday. But um, at any rate, um, Article 3. I want you to look at U.S. Constitution Article 3, because that is where the judicial powers are. So we have the um, the uh, legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch, I can't even talk today. That is Article 1, 2, and 3 of the United States Constitution. And uh, they're separated for a reason, right? So obviously we've heard about separation of powers. That is the biggest thing that I want you to think about when you think about cases and why cases are not case law. They are case precedent, they're opinions, they are something that helps keep the government in check. Uh, even though the word separation of powers, that phrase does not appear in the U.S. Constitution, it damn well appears in the Michigan Constitution, Article 3, Section 2. And uh, for the most part, let's see, does the actual phrase, um, that phrase does not appear in the Florida State Constitution, but if you look at Article 2, Section 3, it does tell you about the separation of powers and the different branches of government. So anyway, those are just two examples, uh, but I wanted to let you know it's in there for a reason. We have a separation of powers of the different branches of the government for a reason, those checks and balances. And, uh, you know, the explanations here in these state constitutions that no powers of one branch can be exercised by another branch. That's that's very powerful. So the reason why I want you to focus on that or remember that here at the onset is that there is no case law, okay? Uh, I say that over and over and over again, but I didn't want you guys to see this topic and go, oh, well, she's talking about all these cases. These cases are so important. Well, uh, what now she's saying that case law is important and we have to listen to what all the, the judges say. Okay, well, no, it's important, but it's not the end all be all. Uh, despite what any court says, the U.S. Constitution is always the supreme law of the land. Uh, and you can go to Article 6 for that, um, to find that as well. Okay, so these five most important decisions of the last 10 that have recently been issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. First, I want to talk about Biden v. Nebraska. 
that is the student loan one. Uh, then we're going to talk about Groff v. DeJoy, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing these names correctly. Next is 303 Creative LLC. That is the one I uh, definitely know I asked you to look at or keep your eye on. Actually, Groff was one I did too. I asked you guys to keep your eye on these decisions that would be coming out. Um, Moore v. Harper is the fourth one. And the last one is Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College, but also the University of North Carolina. So those are the five decisions. Uh, I'm going to try to remember. You guys can't see my slideshow. I wanted to show you in here. I have a screenshot of what that looks like, how they break down all of the most recent 10 decisions and uh, where you can find them, et cetera. I have links, direct links to the U.S. Supreme Court's website, their PDF version of each of these, what are called slip opinions, before they are turned into their final versions. These slip opinions remain on there on that website until the final versions are fully paginated and put into the, um, the reporting books uh, correctly and, and, you know, for all posterity to see. Uh, so these links won't work forever, but they will work now, and it's all we got for now. So um, for each of these decisions, if you want to look up at, at them and read more on them um, on Thursday, you'll be able to click the links uh, right in the slideshow here. So Biden v. Nebraska. So this is the summary put out on the actual United States Supreme Court's website. The Secretary of Education does not have the authority under the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, the HERA. That actually sucks for me because... Uh, as far as equal protection goes, everybody else in, starting in 2020 got all this student loan relief, uh, even just no interest, no payments for their federal loans. I didn't. My loans were too old. I got zero benefits from any of that. And just in December, I finally was like, OK, they have this new thing that's coming out. It's going to be forgiveness of this or that or whatever. Uh, I guess I'll try it. I'll consolidate, make them a newer loan, whatever. I'll bite the bullet for that. Of course, no sooner do I do that, no joke, but it was like the very next day is when the injunction was put in by the lower court saying, oh, no, this is not likely to be found constitutional, which, hey, I knew it wouldn't be constitutional, but shoot, if they're going to do it and get away with it, I might as well benefit, right? So yeah, of course, it doesn't work that way. Anyway, um, so what's good about this, though, is that they're focusing on the fact, read between the lines here, the Secretary of Education, the Department of Education, it's an administrative agency, right, does not have the authority to go above and beyond what, uh, just in principle, debt, that's not even interest. I mean, most of mine have left as interest because of the way they screw us over. So um, anyway, it is it, it is a good decision in that it's recognizing the limits and the source of the power. I mean, think about it. Um, I couldn't find, and maybe there is something in there because of that decision. I really, I was re kind of speed reading. I wasn't really reading every single dot uh, with the utmost of care because there were a lot of these to go through and, and narrow down which ones to share with you. But this particular one. Um, I didn't find anything that jumped out at me is where they clearly just said administrative agencies only have the power that the legislature specifically gives to them through laws. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what this means. They're saying uh, this particular agency does not have the power to do what are right in the slideshow that will be shared with you on Thursdays. This is talking about Title VII. 
uh, Groff v. DeJoy. And Title VII, this is, again, the summary written by the U.S. Supreme Court itself. Title VII requires, employer to, um, requires an employer that denies a religious accommodation to show that the burden of granting the accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to career and uh, they didn't want to work on Sundays, but Sundays, uh, I guess, is the day that the United States Postal Service does, you know, the extra work for Amazon or whatever the situation is. I don't remember the, the entire facts of the case. But anyway, this person said, I can't work on Sundays because um, that is my day of rest. That is my sincerely held religious belief. I'm not supposed to be working or doing anything, uh, you know, of a work nature on Sundays per my religious beliefs. Um, so that person asked for a religious accommodation and the US Postal Service said no. And then they said that they don't really need to show a burden of why they would be denying that religious accommodation. Now, this can go, um, this can be a good decision and a bad decision, but it's certainly one that you guys should be looking into a little bit more. And when I say looking into, Sure, you can have conversations. Sure, you can listen to podcasts about it. But I'm telling you to read at a time because we're just relying on other people to give us that knowledge. No, go to the source directly. Read this opinion. Look through it. That's, you know, why I give you the links for them. But anyway, uh, this wasn't talking just about a federal employer either. This is summarized by the U.S. Supreme Court as just being all employers. And again, this could be a good thing. Talk about religious accommodations. What are some of the religious accommodations that we've been, um, what are some of the re religious accommodations that we have been um, worried about on the side of freedom? in the last few years? Well, one that I could think of has something to do with certain mandates, right? And so uh, with those mandates, uh, one of the ways of trying to get around these unconstitutional things was to um, seek religious accommodations. And uh, many of those religious accommodations were un um, that are actually appropriate running. And you have someone who is Muslim or who is um, Buddhist, or I, I don't know, I don't know uh, very much about um, many other religions, but a religion that is, you know, far to the contrary of um, Christian, um, have religious accommodations and you can't do anything that acknowledges God or Christianity, but oh, we're going to totally accept all, you know, uh, anything to do with Muslim faith or with Buddhism or with Hinduism or whatever. Uh, everything that's not Christianity, yeah, you're welcome. And we're going to acknowledge you and praise you and celebrate you and, and allow you whatever accommodations you want. That's kind of what we've been seeing. Um, and so anyway, this is a case that's important uh, because it has a, it's a double-edged sword. So Okay, the next one is this 303 Creative LLC versus Elanis. Elanis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, case number is 21 476. This is, um, it's not, I was going to say it's a phenomenal case, but none of these go far enough and just say the Constitution is the Constitution is the Constitution, and all government is bound to follow it. All government is bound by the restraints placed in it upon them. And uh, it, it can only act insofar as the government is given certain specific power 
others within the Constitution. But anyway, so none of those, none of these decisions go that far. But this case is about the First Amendment, okay? The First Amendment, and this is, this is again, word for word what the U.S. Supreme Court has for their description of this case. The First Amendment prohibits Colorado or any state from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs. So this is about First Amendment protections, freedom of speech, and quite frankly, freedom of religion. Um, but the forcing of speech, compelled speech, making somebody say something that they don't agree with. Do they have the right to do that? Does any government have the right to do that? No. But it, I wanted to pull out some specific things out of this decision for you. Um, and these are quotes right out of the case itself. Um, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. I just want to say that again. I think it's it's profound. And it was a the the case. This case is quoting another source. I didn't grab the source. I don't know if it's from another case or whatever at this point. But um, so it's not new. It's not novel, but it's just phenomenal. It's something super important that I want us to have sink in. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. That's what I've been doing for the last several years, telling people the truth, whether they want to hear it or not, going up to those Republican legislators that were pretending to be our constitutional heroes and telling them on lives or to their face that they have failed us, that they are not doing their job. And they are just instead assisting the governor in her dirty work. This is a phenomenal case. Again, I'm talking about 303 Creative LLC. Uh, and um, okay, this is a little bit of a longer quote, but I'm going to read it to you anyway, because it really needs context. Again, this is word for word what the U.S. Supreme Court said in this case. In this case, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views, but defy her conscience about a matter of, we're talking about these five super important, uh, recent, very recent U.S. Supreme Court cases. Uh, we were on number three, uh, which is 303 Creative LLC, and um, basically I wanted to reiterate this, this paragraph, I not, it didn't seem like you guys heard much, if anything of it, this is a direct quote word for word from the U S Supreme court. Okay. So this is every word of this is from them in this case, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views, but defy her conscience about a number of uh, about a matter of major significance. In the past, other states in Barnett, Hurley, and Dale, and those were three prior U.S. Supreme Court cases, have similarly tested the First Amendment's boundaries by seeking to compel speech they thought vital at the time. But as this court has long held, the opportunity to think for ourselves and to express those thoughts freely is among our most cherished liberties and what keeps our republic strong. Of course, abiding the Constitution's commitment to the freedom of speech means all of us will encounter ideas we consider unattractive, misguided, or even harmful. But tolerance, not coercion, is our nation's answer. 
the First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Because Colorado seeks to deny that promise, the judgment is reversed. And that is the most amazing last paragraph uh, that I have read in quite some time from any United States Supreme Court decisions. So um, let's see. Um, looks like we're still good so far. All right. So um, hopefully you guys are able to hear that. I'd love to hear some comments. Um, uh, see some comments, I guess, more about what you guys think about that, because that is phenomenal. I mean, these are things we know, but our government and the courts in particular have been shutting down our freedoms, this one, then that one, then this one. And, and sometimes it's with the executive orders, it was just, oh, we'll just cast a wide net and try to stop, oh, say, all of them at the same time. Well, this in this decision, the U.S. Supreme Court is is calling it out for what it is. And they're saying that this is not a matter of like equal protection or whatever that the state of Colorado in this case was trying to make it seem like uh, that they're trying to say she's just a bigot. And, and I think it's a she um, we're going to go with she um, that she was just a, a bigot and she's hateful and she is, you know, um, she's discriminatory and all this other stuff. No, she doesn't discriminate just because somebody is, um, is, uh, you know, gay or lesbian or whatever. Uh, she doesn't say, oh, I'm just not going to create a website for you, or I'm not going to specifically, you know, um, you know, help you with anything at all. She doesn't say no in that sense. What she says no to is no to specific wedding provisions, creating a whole wedding website uh, or things. Um, I think there was some, um, uh, like, like, I can't think of all the words now. I'm all frustrated with this um, technological issue we've been having today, but um, where she's just been doing like online graphic design. That's the word I'm looking for. Graphic design, website design, specifically for uh, weddings and this anyway, this is just important. And the way that it was written, I said this to you guys in, in part two of our live streaming attempts today, um, but it's just poetic. It is absolutely poetic the way that the court put this together. And this is the final paragraph of the case, um, you know, and saying, you know, we're going to hear stuff we don't like. We're going to hear stuff that's unattractive, misguided, or even hurtful stuff that's going to hurt our feelings, right? But we um, have to get over it because the fact is the First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free, free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. And that is essential. Like they said, it is it is uh, one of our most cherished liberties and a part of what keeps our republic strong. Those are actually the very words of the United States Supreme Court in this case. Okay, so I don't know how I'm going to get through it now. I'm super frustrated because it's been a whole hour, and I haven't even touched on the two cases I really wanted to hammer on the most. But here they are, Moore v. Harper. Uh, again, the link for that will be in the slideshow shared with you on Thursday. 
Um, and this is all wording from the U.S. Supreme Court itself that I have pulled here. The question on the merits of the case is whether the elections clause insulates state legislatures from review by state courts for compliance with state law. So in other words, when it comes to making elections laws, when it comes to um, making uh, the districts, you know, to redistricting, which is what this case I think was originally about, when it comes to, you know, whether the, the um, wh whatever all the rules are that come with uh, elections rules and laws that are made by uh, state legislatures, the question is, okay, is that a power really given by the federal excuse me, the federal constitution or a state constitution? Because as we know, it's in the U.S. Constitution that uh, state legislatures are responsible for regulating the time, place, and manner of elections. So what does that really mean? Does that mean that state laws can't control that process? Does that mean, you know, state constitutions can't control that process? What are we talking about here? So um, there were a few cases that were essentially merged into this, but essentially um, I think this one was really an argument about equal protection that there was, um, I think this was North Carolina. The state of North Carolina was doing their redistricting after the census and a group of people, uh, filed lawsuit saying, you know, this is, it violates our rights to equal protection because you've gerrymandered and now there's all these political districts where, you know, disadvantaged or under, you know, there's underrepresented populations. And so it violates our rights to equal protection. And so we need to, um, you know, this is not constitutional how you've drawn these new boundaries. So you would think that this case, this, this opinion would be all about boundaries and equal uh, protection and, and all kinds of stuff like that. That's not what this case hinges on. This whole case, the court is is battling the concept of what what controls a legislature when they're serving in that function. That's literally what they've boiled it down to. Um, so let me see, because um, there was some really good stuff here. Let me make sure I'm looking at the right case. Yeah, this is the right case. Okay, so um, let's see. What they're basically saying, what the legislature, the legislative defendants, right? They're the defendants in the underlying case. Um, and with the dissent in this case, what they were saying is that because the federal constitution or U.S. constitution gives state legislatures the power to regulate congressional elections, only the federal constitution can restrain the exercise of that power. So that's what the legislature is saying. Oh, no, no, no. State constitution can, can do nothing to regulate how we do elections, what kind of laws we make or, or redistricting or whatever. No, no, no. This is only, um, only the U.S. constitution can control how we do things. And essentially what the U.S. Supreme Court said is, no, that's not true. Um, let me see here. Um, I had a lot of good stuff, but I'm going to skim over it because it's just, you're probably not going to hear it with the screen buffering anyway. Um, well, what they have said is that um, states are controlled when states are making all the rules about, um, in fact, 
Hold on. I do want to find that slide. So this is what the U.S. Supreme Court is acknowledging are the functions of elections that state legislatures must do. They must provide a complete code for congressional elections, including regulations relating to notices, registration, supervision of voting, protection of voters, prevention of fraud and corrupt practices, counting of votes, duties of inspectors and canvassers, and making and publication of election returns. Those are all... Anyway, what, what we're talking about is, because you want to know the what, right? And so I've been buffering and having these connection issues, whatever it is. Um, I don't think it's my internet. I think it's the powers that be, but what, whatever. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper is saying that legislatures have the duty to um, to set the tone and the rules and the regulations for elections, specifically for notices and registration, supervision of voting, protection of voters, prevention of fraud and corrupt practices, counting of votes, duties of inspectors and canvassers, and making and publication of election results or returns. That's what they're saying. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. Hey, this is what we're talking about when we're saying um, these are what the duties are for elections, for um, setting the rules for elections for state legislatures. And the question then that this is, at least this is what the U.S. Supreme Court has turned the question into. They're saying the question here is not whether there was gerrymandering. In fact, they do some sort of cute little description of the history of gerrymandering and why it's named gerrymandering and it's whatever. Um, I want to say it might have even been named after a senator from Michigan. Uh, it, whatever. It, it doesn't. It's irrelevant. They don't really talk about that. The case doesn't hinge on what gerrymandering is or if it's bad or equal protection or anything like that. The whole case they turn on to whether state legislatures are um, always bound by their state constitutions or are they only bound by the U.S. Constitution. And what the U.S. Supreme Court here is saying that states, it depends on what a state legislature is doing. So they talk about different roles and um, uh, let's see. <sighs> this sucks. I have so much to share with you. And now that I'm trying to just parse it out and whatever, it's sucking. Um, okay. So, all right. So what they're saying is that they have, state legislatures have these different roles that they're doing. They're either confirming uh, ratifying their, you know, whatever. But there's essentially four main functions of state legislatures that the U.S. Supreme Court has identified. And one of the main ones, obviously, would be lawmaking. And so when you're making laws, which is what the traditional or primary purpose of state legislatures is, at least these days, uh, when you're making laws, the U.S. Supreme Court says, duh, you are bound as a state legislature, not only by the federal constitution, you are bound by the state constitution. That means you have to follow all the proper procedures for each of your processes. So if you have a redistricting commission, they talk about, for example, in an Arizona case from 2015, or like Michigan has recently adopted into their state constitution, if you have 
this is the bad part, a bad part of this decision, but they're saying if you have a redistricting commission, if your state constitution says that your, um, your redistricting lines are drawn up, if the district maps, congressional maps, et cetera, are drawn up by an independent commission, uh, if that's what your state constitution says, then they're saying that a in here, they come out and say that a redistricting commission, even though it's not done, redistricting isn't being done then by the actual state legislature, the United States Supreme Court says, oh, well, it's like a quasi-legislature. So that's okay that they're totally unelected and you're not actually representing the people. It's totally fine. That some important things that are good, though, for this decision. This is Moore v. Harper. For those of you that have been trying to be troopers and hang on there with me, Moore v. Harper, one of the good things they're saying is that a legislature cannot um, pass an act. And another thing that the U.S. Supreme Court said in this case is that the power of us of the assembly, not the powers of assembling or of the people just assembling, but the power of the assembly, capital A, meaning your state legislature, the power of the assembly is limited and defined by the Constitution. The legislature, after all, is a creature of the Constitution. You might remember if you've stuck with us for the 47 times we've tried to go live today, that today's true or false question had something to do with being a creature of the Constitution. So he's saying that the state legislatures are created by state constitutions and their powers are limited and defined by the U.S. Constitution. Certainly the Michigan Supreme Court has expanded on this um, a lot more eloquently throughout the years. And we've talked about some of those decisions. Um, and uh, this is also an important thing I wanted to share with you guys. So the U.S. Supreme Court goes on to say that one of the key virtues of a constitutional system is that a law violating a constitution established by even the people themselves would be considered by the judges null and void. So even if it's something that was um, through, uh, you know, a proposition or whatever, say Prop 1, 2, and 3 from Michigan uh, that, that were newly added to the Michigan Constitution in the last election, even though they were supposedly put into place by the people themselves uh, through petition and then vote, that even that kind of law one added to a state constitution, even that kind of law, if it violates the constitution, it's null and void. And another important aspect, they mentioned that courts of justice have the duty to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the constitution void. They have the duty. It's not just a choice. It's not something they should, you know, say, oh, well, we just we're only going to address this one topic or whatever. Yeah, some of those things have make sense to use as, as norms throughout court cases. But if you have a manifest, a blatant violation of the Constitution in front of you, as a judge, you are bound to call it out. Even sua sponte, which means on your own, even if neither of the parties recognizes it or is willing to admit it. If you see a blatant constitutional act being committed by some form member or official of government, it's your job to put an end to it. 
That's what all of our jobs are. Anybody who has sworn an oath to uphold the U.S. or state constitutions, that is what your job entails. So they're specifically talking about courts of justice, and that's what the job is. One of the one of the other important decisions or, or statements coming out of Moore v. Harper, U.S. Supreme Court case uh, released on June 27th, so two weeks ago, um, is that the framers understanding that when legislatures make laws, so it is the framers understanding they're saying that, or it was their understanding that when legislatures make laws, they are bound by the provisions of the, them, their creators cannot be greater than their creators. That is a very interesting way to put it. And it's a very important concept. Uh, court continues quoting all these different older sources and says, what are legislatures, creatures of the Constitution? They owe their existence to the Constitution. They derive their powers from the Constitution. It is their commission, and therefore, all their acts must be conformable to it, or else they will be void. Talking about the duties and the responsibilities and the limits on state legislatures, and it's tied to the Constitution, the U.S. and the state constitutions. So I think it's just an, a very important case, um, not talking about the things you would think. It's not talking about equal protection. It's not talking about the redistricting. It's talking about the functions of state legislatures and their constraints. And so although there are some bad things in here, or at least some not that great things, um, there is, if you really read it, this case has some really great things reminding us of the source and power of government. The government has no power to do anything unless the constitution has given that power. If we, the people have uh, authorized that power. Um, but will anyone follow the case law? There is no case law. They can't make law. It's case precedent. And uh, who knows? I mean, at this point, so many of Think about it this way. The courts had been going more and more liberal. I mean, we got Roe v. Wade and we got all these KCV Planned Parenthood and you got all these other bad decisions, right? Um, you had all this bad case precedent building and building and building, even by the supposed conservative justices on the court. And even in those decisions that were touted as good wins for conservatism or you know the Constitution, for a Republican form of government, they really throughout the years, throughout the decades have, have gotten just worse and worse and in really walking away from the Constitution, walking away from a Republican form of government, walking away from the people. And yet the machine, the big machine of the politicians and uh, the media and, you know, those with money that try to control They've been trying to teach us that, oh, well, we have to follow everything the U.S. Supreme Court says. If the U.S. Supreme Court says it, it must be true. I mean, look at it. We have a right to an abortion. That's what Roe v. Wade says, right? That's what they've been saying. So they've been thinking they were winning. And so they've been teaching us and teaching us and teaching us, well, you got to follow what the court says. So we're going to hold them to it. Hey, you got to follow what the court says. And the court says, you don't have a constitutional right to an abortion, but you do have a right to life. You do have a right to freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Um, 
administrative agencies don't have the authority to, you know, do things unless Congress has specifically given them that authority, although that's inherently still unconstitutional. Um, and anyway, so as far as following this case precedent, uh, they have set this wheel in motion. They have set this whole thing up so that, hey, we're all ingrained now. You got to follow what the U.S. Supreme Court says. It's going to take them decades to undo that mind, you know, mindset and, and brainwashing that they've set before us. So um, and people in government are always going to do the wrong thing because we're all human. We all sin. There's always going to be sin in our lives. And therefore, there's always going to be wrongdoing and sin within our government. And so it's always going to be our job to be on top of it, to be involved, to be watching and listening and learning, to be calling it out, to be speaking to it. And uh, speaking the truth in love is, is one of the strongest things that we could do. And it's one of the things we have to do most often. So um, SCOTUS has cut the ATF and EPA off at the knees, off at the knees in recent opinions, pointing out the overreach. No, I don't think they've cut them off at the knees, especially the EPA decision that came last uh, late a uh, year ago, almost a year ago. Um, today uh, that it was it was a good decision, but it didn't go far enough. Hello, I'm Constitutional Attorney Catherine Henry, and this is attempt number four at finishing Restore Freedom Weekly Season 2, Episode 23. We've had a lot of technical difficulties today, and we started streaming through our streaming platform to go out to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Rumble like we always do. Uh, ended up having to try just going directly through YouTube twice and now ending up uh, recording this through OBS and just uploading it later. So this uh, is the fourth portion of today's episode. It's going to be posted as a standalone video as well as being added on to the end of the other three for one full episode that you'll be hopefully able to glean a lot of important information from despite the choppy technical difficulty issues, or I guess issues with me learning how to speak today. Um, it's been quite a challenging day. So at any rate, um, this is, and I, <laughs> I feel like I've repeated myself 75 times at this point because I have, so uh, just bear with me. It's not the most graceful episode you'll ever encounter from me. But it is nonetheless important and something um, that I think is uh, definitely needing to be talked about. And that's why we're trying so hard to make today's episode go through completely. Today we're talking about the five uh, most important of the newest U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Now, there are, if you look at the United States Supreme Court's website, I'm going to go uh, give you this screenshot here and uh, you'll be able to see this slide uh, in the slideshow that we share with you on Thursdays as always and you'll be able to click this purple link right here supremecourt.gov slash opinions slash slip opinion slash 22 uh, and it'll show you all of these slip opinions or in other words the opinions that are brand new and haven't been put in the official pub published books basically with the um, citations where you normally would say, you know, um, uh, whatever, uh, 538 U.S. 612 or something like that, meaning 
uh, page 612 of Book 538 of the United States Supreme Court decisions. Um, at any rate, so th that's not available yet. When they're brand new, they're called slip opinions. And um, you can see them just basically, it's a PDF posted online to uh, the court's website. And so if you look here, it automatically shows you the 10 most recent decisions that were made. And five of these are noteworthy enough to really reach, reach a wide audience and be something that most of you should at least be aware of. And so we talked about, um, in fact, I'll go back here. These are the five decisions there. And we talked about Biden v. Nebraska and Groff v. DeJoy, uh, 303 Creative LLC, and Moore v. Harper. And that one was, I think, in video three that we were talking about that. Um, and a, a very long conversation, lots of good stuff in there. Uh, not as much from the other three that we were covering, but they're important topics. Uh, these five decisions, the reason why I picked these out and thought these are ones we need to talk about is because they're going over things like free speech and uh, freedom of religion, uh, religious accommodations in the workplace, limits on administrative agency power, the duties and limits of state legislatures, protection of private property rights, racial justice, affirmative action, you name it. There's some big key hot topics that are covered in just these five of the 10 most recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Something to keep in mind is that courts don't make laws. There's no case law. There's case precedent. Uh, but simply because their opinions are not laws doesn't mean they could just simply be ignored. No, we need to know what's in there because number one, some of these are actually good and follow the Constitution to some degree, uh, they're going in the right direction. But number two, even if it's terrible, even if they're terrible decisions, you need to know what the other side is doing. You need to know what you're battling. You need to know what's out there. And so uh, for all of those reasons, it's important that we talk about these five cases. Again, with this video, just focusing on the last one because uh, the other ones have been covered with our prior three attempts that will be all rolled into one video for you to check out as well. So with that being said, we're gonna roll right on into Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. And this is a case that was originally filed in 2020. And um, it was actually, there's a consolidation. Um, let me back up and share that um, the petitioner in this case, Students for Fair Admissions, uh, and this is right from the wording of the of the opinion itself, is a nonprofit organization founded in 2014 whose purpose is to defend human and civil rights secured by law, including the right of individu individuals to equal protection under the law. And uh, the underlying case, the, the original le uh, litigation that led to this decision today was actually commenced in November of 2014 when this organization was created. They filed separate lawsuits against Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, arguing that their race-based admissions programs violated uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
So a couple things to keep in mind. I'm not sure why they targeted these uh, two organizations specifically, but um, they're representative nonetheless of colleges and universities all across the country. And so this is an important case, not just applicable to Harvard and University of North Carolina, but the, um, let's see, the beginning here, uh, it talks about, first of all, Harvard is, perhaps this is one of the reasons why it was picked. Harvard was founded in 1636. 1636. It's been around that long. And it's seen as a very prestigious uh, institution where it's very hard to get into it. Uh, you have, um, I think their numbers were something like 40,000 uh, or 60,000 students a year trying to apply to get in and only 2,000 get in every year. Um, and so it, it's, um, you know, they, they pride themselves. In fact, the litigation actually talks about uh, one of their goals is to really create leaders uh, for our country, for our world, certainly for our communities. And so you can see why it's an important college to bring into the discussion with what they're doing and how they're affecting the country. Um, and the University of North Carolina, the court points out here, is that they pride themselves on being the nation's first public university. And it doesn't say exactly when they were created, but they were founded shortly after the Constitution was ratified. So uh, perhaps maybe 100 or 150 years after Harvard was founded is when the University of North Carolina was founded. And so these two institutions, one private and one public, are, uh, you know, ingrained in the history of the United States and this country in, in many different ways. And so anyway, those are the technical defendants to this case with that um, nonprofit organization uh, that was created in 2014, like I mentioned, being the uh, plaintiff here. And so the court goes through the admissions process of Harvard in, in great detail, goes through the admissions process of the University of North Carolina in detail as well, and uh, really boiling it down to that, it, you know, really from the beginning, race plays a big factor in the admissions process to these universities. Um, in fact, the final level of the admissions process at Harvard um, only contains four pieces of information. Their legacy status, meaning do they have family members that have been going there and graduating from there, etc. Uh, their recruited athlete status, their financial aid eligibility, and race. Those are the four last criterion that are looked at when you go to the, um, the, the final uh, committee of, of people uh, at Harvard that look at whether somebody makes the final cut to be admitted into the university at any given time. And so race, obviously, a big factor here. Uh, the same holds true for the University of North Carolina. Uh, they look at race and ethnicity as one factor in their review, but um, the court points out that during the years at issue in this litigation, underrepresented minority students were more likely to score highly on their personal ratings than their white and Asian American peers, meaning uh, they were given higher rankings at least in part, simply because of their race. 
but they were more likely to be rated lower on their academic program, academic performance, and extracurricular activities. That is one of the findings that has come out through all of this extensive litigation. So we're talking about none other than, you know, this isn't a movie uh, or a video. This isn't a video about racism. This isn't a video about the history of our country and how deplorable things were and and have been for, for quite some time. It isn't about the level of racism that exists now or where it exists, but I can tell you this, racism does exist now, but it doesn't exist only in one direction from one group to another. No, racism exists from white people toward black people, from white people toward uh, those of Hispanic uh, backgrounds, uh, white people towards Asian people, but racism definitely exists from Asian people towards white people or black people towards white people or towards Hispanic people. It, it exists not from every single person towards every other kind of uh, race, but it just is, it is a thing that exists. People have preconceived notions and sometimes, you know, in, you know those are assumptions. And sometimes those assumptions uh, fueled by um, lack of knowledge and by hate or specific circumstances that grows into an intolerance or a racism or a discrimination. But that doesn't mean that every single person is racist. And it does, certainly doesn't mean that every single white person is racist of everybody who's not white. Uh, racism at all is bad. It shouldn't happen. And in fact, our Constitution guarantees us under the 14th Amendment equal protection under the law. Equal protection. And it's not just about race, but it definitely includes race. So um, at any rate, um, with that being said, that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about, and it, you can look at this opinion itself, the link you can find doing your own quick search, or I, of course, will be sharing that through uh, this um, presentation, the slideshow, um, later on. Um, on Thursday this week. But uh, if you go to page five of the slip opinion, this the pagination I'm sharing with you today, once it gets published in final copy, these pages will no longer be as relevant. Um, but nonetheless, this is what we have to go off of today. So number five of the slip opinion, there's a footnote and it's talking about Justice Jackson and the attempt to minimize the role that race plays in admissions. Um, so the, the dissent in this case is trying to downplay how much of a role race has, but in reality, the numbers are, I mean, the numbers don't lie. They're in black and white or in yellow, if you're seeing my highlighted versions here um, in my notes, but um, they're talking about both at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, that especially the, with the, the lower... Um, 
the lower the grade point average or the lower the academic scores are, uh, when you start going a little bit lower and a little bit lower into the class of people that are still accepted, the race, the number of um, people uh, divided by race for each of those academic categories changes drastically. Uh, so you have to the point of in the second highest academic, academic uh, section, the disparity is even starker. This is what the U.S. Supreme Court writes here. 83% of black applicants were admitted, while 58% of white applicants and 47% of Asian applicants were admitted. So these are people that all have the same academic credentials. And we're just talking about, okay, so what else is left? There's nothing else that pushes them over. They're the same academically or with sports or whatever uh, in those ratings. They're the same. This is just talking about what's left is race. And they're purposely selecting uh, individuals to be accepted into their institutions because of race. It is a huge factor in it. And let me see here. Um, Oh, there was a quote that came right from one of them where I wanted to share that with you. There's it's quite a long opinion and a lot going on here, but um, well, at any rate, basically it, the um, both of these colleges are admitting that if they didn't use their affirmative action programs in their admissions, if race was not um, going to be a factor, then the racial makeup of those whom they admit would be drastically different than what it is today and what it has been for the years that these programs have been in place. So they're saying, yes, Race does play a huge factor in admissions. Um, so it's just one of those things. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't argue out of both sides of your mouth um, for the same thing. So um, some of the other things I wanted to point out to you guys. Let's see here. Um, I had quite a bit that I wanted to share initially. And uh, it was hard for me to narrow it down. But in talking about the Equal Protection Clause... Um, the court does a lot of quoting of, of other cases and uh, the Federalist Papers and, and just other sources, but it, they're adopting these words as their own. So I'm not going to tell you whom they're citing, but if they're essentially adopting the words as their own, we're just going to go with that. And the court says in one of these citations that any law which operates upon one man should operate equally upon all. And the 14th Amendment will hold over every American citizen without regard to color the protecting shield of the law. And we've talked about that before, that the purpose of the law in general, of government in general, is to secure our God-given liberties, to protect our rights so that when I'm exercising my God-given rights, I'm not impeding upon your exercise of your God-given rights. And uh, the court continues and says that for without this principle of equal justice, 
There is no Republican form of government and none that is really worth maintaining. But you cannot have a Republican form of government if people are not treated equally and protected equally under the law. Uh, and then I love this. The court is acknowledging that despite the U.S. Supreme Court's early recognition of the broad sweep of the Equal Protection Clause. So despite their early cases acknowledging exactly how in-depth and how pervasive this uh, Equal Protection Clause is meant to be, this court, alongside the country, quickly failed to live up to the clause's core commitments. So even though the court acknowledged it from early on what the role of the 14th Amendment was. The court and the entire country screwed it up and got it wrong for many years. The court reiterates, separate cannot be equal. You wouldn't think we'd have to do that, but yet with masking and other mandates, that's an issue. Uh, that the Constitution is colorblind is our dedicated belief. That's also a very important quote they put in here because it is colorblind. And we talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about, you know, all these uh, racial tensions and uh, things that, you know, law enforcement officers do wrong and the violence perpetrated against uh, people of, of different races uh, that seem to be unjustified. Well, let me tell you this. Conservatives and liberals largely agree across the entire spectrum that law enforcement officers of every state, at every level, in every community, there are good ones and there are bad ones. And the bad ones violate our rights. They discriminate. They may even rise to the level of murdering innocent people. It happens. We're not denying that it happens. No one on either side of the political aisle denies that it happens. Discrimination, we talked about, it does exist, but not as pervasively as we think. But I'm going to say another thing that shouldn't be so provocative, and that is all lives matter. All, all, all of our lives matter. Why should my life matter any more or less than yours based on the color of your skin? And the Constitution, as it is today, with whatever amendments have been uh, adopted to this day, the Constitution protects our right to be individuals, to be valued as the human beings we are without regard to what disabilities we have or uh, to the color of our hair or eyes or skin or what our heritage is. I don't want to be discriminated for or against because of my Finnish or German heritage. I don't want my children to grow up in a world thinking it's okay to discriminate against someone because they came from China or, you know, uh, Russia or whatever. With all that's going on in the world today, I want us to be able to evaluate each person for their own values, for what they bring to the table, not for what history has set out before them. We are not defined 
by history. We are not defined by what has come before us. We are defined by the actions we choose to take in every moment. And we don't have to choose to perpetuate racism. We don't have to choose to perpetuate the lack of equal protection of the law. We don't have to choose to perpetuate bias and discrimination, especially when it's being brought out in the name of supposed justice and freedom. No, that doesn't bring about racial equality. That doesn't bring about anything that's good. What it brings about is the very stuff that this opinion actually points to much more eloquently than I do, but it just that's what comes to mind for me when I read that the court is quoting here, that the Constitution is colorblind is our dedicated belief. And eliminating discrimination, or in this case racial discrimination, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Not the parts that you think are bad and leaving the parts that you think are good or okay. No, eliminating discrimination means eliminating discrimination. And this means it's the same philosophy that the court really applied when they were talking about that First Amendment case, the 303 Creative LLC. In there, the court's talking about the freedom of speech and how we all have to hear part of what's inherent in having freedom of speech is being able to say what you want and not have the government control it or dictate that you have to say something or can't say something, even if it's something that's ugly or something we don't like, something that's inappropriate. There's a lot of inappropriate stuff that's said all the time. That doesn't mean the government is supposed to step in and do something about it. No. If you're physically harming somebody, if you're inciting violence, that's one thing. But if you're simply saying something just dumb or full of hate, just let people see it for what it is and move on. Because it's, it's interesting that the people that seem to be so concerned about having the government and social media police what's be being said and to control the hate and stop the hate rhetoric, those are the ones that have actually the strongest views of hate and control and uh, lack of freedom. Those are the people that will personally attack at every move and say, you know, the worst of things about someone without knowing anything about them. If you don't like what I have to say, then address what I'm saying. Don't attack me. You attacking me shows you have a problem. It shows your lack of knowledge. It just shows your ignorance. It doesn't show that you have any intellectual ability. It doesn't show that you have thoughts that are smarter than mine or better than mine or that you're any more accepting or loving or Christian. No, when you attack the person instead of attacking the problem, that's where the cycle perpetuates. So allow me to have my opinions and you to have your opinions. And we move on together as a society somehow attacking the problems, compromising to reach solutions about the problems, not forcing people to give up who they are or compromising their sincerely held religious beliefs, etc. At any rate, I'm mixing cases. Back to this one being the students for fair admissions one that we um, have uh, showing on the bottom of the screen there. Um, 
lots of good stuff that I have highlighted too much to share with you all today. Uh, but the, so the court is reiterating that these cases, the two that they merged for this decision today, involve whether a university or college may make admission decisions that turn on an applicant's race. Can race be a factor? Can affirmative action be something that is used in college admissions? And uh, there's a lot of interesting cases and history that the court goes through here, but just more for you to hopefully want to read these decisions yourself then. Uh, the court says we have permitted race-based admissions only within the confines of very narrow restrictions. University programs must comply with strict scrutiny. It's the highest level of scrutiny that the court uh, uses when determining if something is constitutional or not. They may never use race as a stereotype or something that's negative. And at some point, they must end. Respondents' admissions system, so the colleges in question here, however well-intentioned and implemented in good faith, fail each of these criteria. They must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So what's interesting, uh, I wonder, I thought I had that part. Um, Yes, I do. Okay. I thought I skipped a part. So they're talking here about um, that they can't be used, race-based admission programs, that the courts have never allowed those at universities to be used uh, to stereotype people based on their, uh, their race or in any way that's negative. But that's kind of inherent in what you're doing. You're saying people that are of a certain, whatever race uh, your particular institution would be benefiting the most. And these ones, it was um, black Americans that were benefiting the most from these admissions policies in question, that those individuals somehow couldn't get in on their own. They couldn't cut it. Their grades wouldn't be good enough. They weren't smart enough. They weren't athletic enough. They didn't have enough musical abilities. Uh, Anyone who knows me knows that I have almost zero. Uh, I have negative, uh, actually, musical abilities. I scare my children when I sing. Um, but at any rate, uh, they're saying you can't make it. You can't cut it unless you have an additional helping hand that we think, you know, uh, white individuals or Asian American applicants or Hispanic applicants don't need as much. Wait, what? How? How is that helpful? How is that not stereotypical? That is the definition of what the affirmative action programs are. Uh, and they're, they're also saying that we have required universities, they're saying that so far, all the, our history of these cases has already required universities operate their race-based admission programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under this rubric of strict scrutiny. So in other words, you can't have some sort of abstract goal of using uh, race in your admissions. You have to be able to have some sort of measurable, attainable uh, goal and something that, you know, a court could be an outside party looking in and go, okay, so you have met that goal or you have not met that goal yet. That's what they are saying here. 
They also, the court also says that the respondents' admissions programs failed to articulate a meaningful connection between the means that they employ and the goals they pursue. So they're saying your goals of, and they each college listed, you know, a litany of, you know, four, five, six, seven different goals that they have for using these affirmative action programs in their admissions process. Um, but that their goals they're trying to obtain, there's no meaningful connection by the way that they're doing it. In fact, uh, you know, the court's talking about just the pure math. You could end up with, um, I'm not sure if I have that highlighted in here somewhere, but uh, yeah, right here. Respondents, these Harvard and University of North Carolina, would apparently prefer a class with 15% of their students that come from Mexico alone over a class of that had 10% of students that came from several different Latin American countries simply because the former, the 15% from Mexico, contained more Hispanic students than the 10% from the several different Latin American countries. So how is that right? How, uh, how are we saying that, uh, so students um, that would be either coming from Mexico or having Mexican heritage, that those are somehow just equal to and should be stereotyped and lumped in with those from Brazil or Chile or uh, Ecuador. Uh, really? I guess I'm mixing South America and Central America, but at any rate, point being that um, it, it's lumping people in and really for what reason? What is the, how are they helping to create a more diverse um, educational environment, for example, if they end up having a whole bunch of people all from the same area or same background or same skills or abilities, simply because they're saying, well, this percent has this color skin, but this percent has this color skin. That doesn't necessarily make it any more diverse. Uh, you're assuming that everybody has the same line of thought simply based on the color of their skin. So, um, something that I like how the court points out here, and, and they go through quite a, a discussion on this, but if you go to page 27, if you're following along with the opinion at some point, college admissions are zero-sum. Hopefully you've heard of the phrase zero-sum game or zero-sum, where some people win, others must lose. There's only so much in in the pie and and so whatever somebody has somebody has to give up or someone else has to give up i should say and so the court explains college admissions are zero sum a benefit provided to some applicants but not to others necessarily advantages one group at the expense of the other group. So there is a negative result for the second group. Uh, let's see here. Harvard's admissions process rests on the pernicious stereotype that a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. How does that not sound racist? How is that not insulting to black people and white people alike? That 
it's you have something to bring simply because of the color of your skin and that's you know the overarching thing it, it, it overshadows who you are as a person what you have achieved personally what intelligence you have or what wisdom you bring uh, what your life experiences are what your talents gifts and abilities are None of that matters as much as the color of your skin, and that really says the most about who you are as a person. In fact, the United States Supreme Court points out that UNC is much the same. It argues that race in itself says something about who you are. Now, yes, there's cultural definitions. There's, uh, you know, things that are about, you know, in the South, there's just cultural ways of, of living and doing and being, uh, working uh, in the North or on the East Coast or on the West Coast. You know, things in the Midwest, I mean, just there's phrases, there's, there's things that seem to exist. For example, when I moved from Florida to Minnesota in high school and uh, then went off to college and, and they were talking about bars and hot dish. And I'm like, what in the world is wrong with you people? What's a bar? Like, are you talking about like a, a protein bar? Or what are we talking about here? Hot dish? What on earth is that? Uh, <laughs> those, it's just something that everybody knows what you're talking about. It's a cultural thing. And it's something that if there's some certain big event, certainly uh, where there would be food or something served, you're going to bring some sort of hot dish or you're going to bring bars or you're going to, you know, and it's going to be brought to share. And it's okay. Uh, it's something you just don't have any clue about if you're from Florida. And I was raised in Florida. Um, so, you know, there's just that's just an example. But there's all kinds of things that make us unique about, you know, our culture, our heritage. Uh, you know, my kids grew up knowing that I didn't really prefer to eat the Gundava, the, the end of the bread. It's a Finnish thing. I'm Finnish in heritage. And, you know, there's other little things about saunas and, you know, just, just stuff about sisu and having grit, perseverance. There's just things about being Finnish that I love. You know, it's part of me. I try to teach my kids uh, those parts of them, etc. But it's not something that I think makes me better than you because you're not Finnish. It's not something that I think I should be given some sort of you know, special, you know, leg up in a, in a competition or, you know, admissions process or something like that, because that's, you know, part of my bloodline. No, it should be based off of my hard work. Sure. The perseverance part, how much did I persevere and what I, what did I do with that? How did I use my life experiences to create this life story and share it with you? How did I share it with you? And what am I doing with that? That's what this should all be about. But at any rate, um, one of the principal reasons race is treated as a forbidden classification, the United States Supreme Court says, is that it demeans the dignity and worth of a person to be judged by ancestry instead of by his or her own merit and essential qualities. But when a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. I tell you what, um, I went to college in southwest Minnesota where there wasn't a whole lot of diversity. Um, 
It was in a town that I had never heard of until I applied for college there. Marshall, Minnesota, Southwest Minnesota State University. That's where I went to school. And um, there were a lot of differing opinions, especially those come out a lot in uh, political science types of courses and philosophy. And what were two of my majors? political science and philosophy. So I got to hear all kinds of different things that I didn't agree with. And do you know what? The vast majority of those differing opinions came from people with skin the same color as my own. I would never want to be lumped in together with any of those people just because we might look the same or have the same color skin. And still to this day, you know, my opinions have changed drastically because of life experiences and different things that God has put in my path, hopefully for the better. But of course, for those that disagree with me, they're going to say that it's for the worse. But they're still my opinions and I'm entitled to them, just the same as you're entitled to yours. And it doesn't make my worth any less nor should my worth be defined uh, based on my race. So um, at any rate, those were the wonderful words of the court. Um, and in, in doing these race-based admissions, the court says the university furthers stereotypes that treat individuals as the products of their race, evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution. Um, what else is here? At the heart of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection, the court continues, lies the simple command that the government must treat citizens as individuals, not as simply components of a racial, religious, sexual, or national, national class. And the dissent in this case, and Harvard, and the other colleges and universities, etc., everybody that was participating that said, affirmative action, we've got to keep it, got to keep it. All of them, uh, quite a few of them were arguing anyway, that there should be this notion of societal discrimination we're fixing societal discrimination, and that constitutes a compelling interest, a reason why the government and why uh, the government should allow and or perpetrate this kind of discrimination, why it would be okay. Uh, but that societal discrimination and trying to rectify that cannot justify a racial classification that imposes disadvantages upon persons who bear no responsibility for whatever harm the beneficiaries of the race-based admissions program are thought to have suffered. And that's something that's key. That's something that's been debated about for years. But let's put it this way. Do I, as a white person, acknowledge the atrocities, the downright illegal, unconstitutional, unchristian, horrendous, heinous behavior of people that had my skin color in the past? Do I acknowledge that they 
owned slaves, that they were discriminatory, that they would advocate for, you know, oh, well, you guys have to have your own neighborhood. We don't want you in our neighborhood. Oh, you have to drink from that drinking fountain. You have to sit at the back of the bus. You have to do whatever. Do I acknowledge that those things happened? Heck yeah, I do. Do I think they're okay? Absolutely not. But does that mean that because people with my skin color did those things that I should be punished? I should be disadvantaged now because of what people who are not even around anymore did then? Would that actually remedy the problem? And when you have discrimination that happened in the past, why would people that have the same skin color now get reparations for what happened to someone unrelated to them in the past? That makes no sense. Now, for discrimination that's happening now, should there be remedies? Should it be stopped? Yes! But correcting historical atrocities, the, the court goes on to explain, I mean, that would have no end in sight. And then what does it do? It's actually perpetrating. Your method of correcting is actually to deepen the divide, to create more of a disparate impact and a different way of looking at people. And to reinforce, you must look at people based on the color of their skin. But that's not what we should be doing. We should be teaching our children the opposite. We should be teaching everyone the opposite. We should not allow anyone to be judged based on the color of their skin for any reason, whether you think it's a good reason or a bad reason. And the court actually does a good point of touching on that as well. Uh, permitting past societal discrimination to serve as the basis for rigid racial preferences would be to open the door to competing claims for remedial relief of every disadvantaged group. And I could tell you personally, I have been on the, the disadvantaged side of admissions or whatever, even with the highest of academic achievements and sports credentials and extracurricular activities and oodles and oodles of hours of community service and volunteering and job experience and you name it. I've been working my butt off since I was a child. I mean, I literally had my first job at age 11. Not, you know, at home, but out in the real world at a company at age 11. I've been receiving straight A's, you know, since I was in kindergarten or preschool. I mean, I just work hard. I've earned what I've worked for. I've earned what I've been able to achieve. I've never had anything handed to me. I would love a little respite or break or here, here's just, you know... Even as a single mom, I didn't have people stepping in and just saying, sure, I'll watch your kid once a week for an hour so that you could study or you could go to this class or whatever. Or, hey, every, you know, every month I'll buy you a box of diapers or, you know, a can of food or something. No, 
I didn't have that. I wasn't afraid to take help where it was being offered and I, I did my best to ask for help where I thought help could be given. But most of the time it just simply didn't come and I worked my butt off to still survive and get where I'm at and I shouldn't be on the receiving end of being disadvantaged in that, um, in that scenario. But now that I have, should I then be able to go and say, okay, well now you need to make me whole. Now I'm, um, uh, I'm a disadvantaged, part of a disadvantaged group and I need remedial relief. I should get it, right? But that would perpetrate the cycle because we would just be continuing to reward or compensate or uh, repair, you know, harm uh, based on color of skin and it would just keep that divide going. So, um, I love this. This is buried in a footnote. Page 36, it's footnote 8 of the, of the um, majority opinion here. So the principal dissent, so I, there must be two, I think there's two dissents to this case, but the principal dissent at one point attempts to press a different remedial rationale altogether, stating that both colleges have sordid legacies of racial exclusion, okay? So this is the dissent. This is uh, justices that think that affirmative action needs to keep going. They're saying as part of their rationale, well, the University of North Carolina and Harvard have sordid, horrible, atrocious legacies of racial exclusion. But the court points out here that such institutions should perhaps be the very last ones allowed to make race-based decisions let alone be accorded deference in doing so. So earlier in the opinion, you can also see that the dissent is arguing that the, the colleges should be able to decide for themselves if their affirmative action programs are working or if they still need to continue them because they're not achieving that goal that they want of the you know uh, diversity or the level of diversity or whatever the case may be. Hello, if we left it up to them, if they are the ones that have sordid legacies of racial exclusion, how, why, why would you say, oh, well, you should keep it up. Good job. Keep going. Keep discriminating against. You're just changing the ebb and flow of who you're using the discrimination to benefit or to hinder. But, you know, good job. We'll just, we'll just step back and let you do your thing. Um, so they're saying they shouldn't be allowed to make race-based decisions anymore, let alone to have the court back off and, and just let them run with it. The court also says towards the end here, a judiciary that picks winners and losers based on the color of their skin, you would think that would not be what the left is fighting for in this case, but that is exactly what they're fighting for. And while the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminate against black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue. In its view, this court is supposed to tell state actors when they have picked the right races to benefit. 
And that's exactly what the left is saying. Well, these particular race-based programs are okay, but if you'd flipped them on their head and said, no, we're going to select, we're going to try to remedy what we went too far with affirmative action. And, and now we're, you know, letting too many black students in and, and not as many Asian or um, white students in as we should have been. And so we're going to flip the script and, and give the extra bonus points for admissions to white or Asian students. Of course, the left would be like, ah, you can't do that. Well, they shouldn't be able to do that to benefit or hinder any particular set of group uh, groups of students based on their the color of their skin at any point. But the left is saying this particular one is a-okay. There's no differentiation. Under the law, it's still discrimination. But this kind of discrimination is totally okay because it benefits the people that we want it to benefit. And it harms the people that we don't care about harming. That's, whether you like it or not, that's what it boils down to. So, uh, in the end, I agree. The judiciary is not supposed to pick winners and losers based on the color of their skin. And quite frankly, if you believe that black lives matter, if you believe in, you know, everything that the Democrat Party is supposed to stand for, or the Green Party, or whomever. If you believe in everything that the Republican Party platform stands for, you should believe in that concept too. The government should not be picking winners and losers based on the color of their skin. They've done it. It didn't work out so well. We shouldn't allow them to continue doing it now. So, the dissent and the um, majority agree that Justin Har Justice Harlan in, in history knew better. He said, in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. So the court concluded, for the reasons provided here, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve ratio st racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite. In so doing, they have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Regardless of whether history would tolerate it, I would say it's not okay. It's not okay to judge someone based on the color of their skin or their heritage. It's not okay to give them preferential treatment or to give them bad repercussions because of it. Judge each person of their own value. 
what they have each achieved and done and learned and the kind of person that each person is of their own accord. Well, with that being said, that discussion is a lot longer than I anticipated, but so it is. Uh, we will add this in to the other video, hopefully, unless it ends up being too long. Um, but regardless, um, join us back on Thursday for our Constitution segment recap, where I somehow am going to try to squeeze all of this into 10 minutes might have to do more than one video but uh anyway we will do the best we can uh check back tomorrow on wednesday for our wednesday way to get involved challenge friday's freedom fighting tools and saturday's way that you can get involved to support us through our restore freedom goodies and all the merchandise is just sold at cost to help spread the word it's the donations that we share with you that would be the way to financially support the endeavors that we have including restore freedom weekly uh which was what this episode was all right guys thank you so much for joining today i am constitutional attorney katherine henry and uh, i always value having you join us for our efforts to restore Freedom Weekly.